0: Because I I remember visiting the Soviet Union in eighty-six. That's a world without advertising. <laughs> you know, it's like
1: Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Rockstar CMO FM. The M is for marketing and the F it's all well you decide. As you're probably wondering, does the world need another effing marketing podcast? I'm your host, Ian Truscott, and this podcast serves as my excuse to chat with a variety of marketing friends, old and new, that I've met through my career in B2B marketing, working in leadership positions as a trusted advisor to clients for agencies and with my own firm. Come say hello. You can find me through Rockstar CMO, or I'm Ian Truscott on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you want to connect, please mention the show. This episode was recorded on Friday the 9th of April and I hope you've had a good week that you are well safe and staying as sane as you feel you need to be. In today's show, Jeff Clark returns and we discuss privacy as marketers consider Google's decision to phase out third-party cookies. I meet Sarah Griesenbach, founder of the B2B Writing Institute and the content conversation continues in the Rockstar CMO Virtual Bar over a cocktail with Robert Rose. Right, let's get started, shall we? On to our first segment. I'm again joined by Jeff Clark, Rockstar CMO advisor and former research director for Serious Decisions, Forrester, as we continue to discuss privacy, the marketer's dilemma. Welcome back, Jeff, to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you, my friend?
0: Doing very well. Enjoying a nice early spring. Yeah,
1: beautiful. And um, we are continuing with our series of Privacy, the Marketer's Dilemma, um, part two.
0: Part two. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I know in our conversations prior to this, because um, for a change, as people may be surprised to know this, that we do a tiny bit of prep, um, <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, Google, uh, the cookie apocalypse. Uh, yes. And as as we know, Google are going to stop supporting third-party cookies. There's a lot being talked about about this. And I'm just going to
0: toss it over to you like I do every week. What say, say you, you, Jeff? Say you what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it, it, so, yeah, it it, it I, I saw that term Google or the cookie apocalypse. I think I asked yeah. Google onto the front of it because they're the ones that are uh, starting the apocalypse. It, it's interesting that, you know, Apocalyptic and dystopian fiction are like really popular these days. But you, mm-hmm. usually, it's about viruses or climate change or nuclear mm-hmm. war. And mm-hmm. um, but now it's about Google. So hey, you know. <laughs> it's, that's, that's <laughs> but it was interesting. You you had um, last week. You had referenced you know just as we got going this this mm-hmm. article or this blog by Mark Schaefer and he was citing this um, study from a group solo segment which obviously they have a reason for doing the study they're trying mm-hmm. to market their their particular product but it was interesting going through uh some of the data points and understanding the issues um uh you know if google gets rid of of um uh you know using cookies and it so the first thing is i i had to like step back and think about okay so if they're going to get rid of using cookies why are they doing that and the other thing I mm-hmm. noted is that they're they're not accepting um, proposals for how to replace cookies no I had that too yeah and it's kind of like well cookies I don't know cookies good bad and different but it is kind of like the the it, it's it's the technique that all the browsers use to try to mm-hmm. track behavior mm-hmm. and you and I know as, as marketers trying to track behavior people come to your website or people you're advertising to is yeah. extremely important and that but you know it's like so google has 66 percent of the market share of browsers out there mm-hmm. and then you got safari and microsoft edge and um firefox you know basically suck up most of the rest of that and and they all you know they all support uh cookies so you know it's like the only answer I can come to is that you know Google wants to own behavioral data. So for their own advertising revenue, for being able to sell the data, you know, they they want to have control over it. And and you know, I, from my perspective, it's like why should we really? Why should we let them? Because it's mm-hmm. it, that's very monopolistic behavior. That's mm-hmm. like okay. Now we've got the lion's share of of um, browser market share, and that's grown mm-hmm. over the past like ten years from like fifty percent to sixty six percent. So now we're in a position where we can grab grab everything, and it's like yeah. I don't know. I so makes me want to switch browsers. Although we do yeah. use multiple browsers, yeah. Um, and it just it's it, it's one of those things that that I mean. A couple questions one is one. It's like to me, we shouldn't be letting them. Do that, or that's monopolistic behavior. So we should call yep. up our senators and our members of parliament and say, "Okay, <laughs> it's time to time to put the put the clamps on these guys. At least you know um, from anti competitive behavior. Mm-hmm. But also, it it is you know with the and this is like a lot of the stats that were from this solo segment report. You know, since mm-hmm. so many people are doing research online, people are deleting cookies or they're you know doing private browsing. People are turned off by gated content. And so we as marketers are like constantly thinking about, oh gosh, you know, these are all the tools that I use to mm. understand who's coming to my site or who's read my ads and re- and refer, or, you know, refer from other sites and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to lose the ability that these things give me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I do think we need to be asking the question and it is kind of what I brought up last week when we were talking about privacy is that, is that you know, do we, uh, you know, we should be thinking about when we're thinking about our customers and our prospects, we should be thinking and we should sort of put ourselves into their shoes and say, well, well, what are they trying to do? I mean, they're trying to do research. We should be helping them Indeed. doing their research, understand how to solve their business problems and all these other mm-hmm. techniques that are these nice, cute little ways of Capturing and sucking people in, you know, are they are they really helping us do that job of yeah. creating our brand, so people know that we're a source to come to, and then delivering mm-hmm. them information which helps them in their research.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think there's two sides to this, isn't there? Because it's not cookies per se. It's the third party cookies. So, yes. and, it, and I think it's where you draw the line as a market. I mean, from, my, from my perspective, there's, a, I've long, you know, we've long held this vision that a, that they, that we could deliver a concierge personalized digital experience around our understanding of what the, what somebody's trying to do. Right. And hopefully we would do that in a, helpful way and 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 that we would as you say we recognize that somebody's researching and like you know I can't remember a billion years ago maybe even when we were maybe even before I was at SDL with you I used to talk about the analogy of of a, of a man walking into a suit shop and if and when you're when you're a man walking into a suit shop there's that unique experience you know where the where the guy kind of sizes you up and he, he kind of guides you to the right part of the rail where you should be shopping you know and you have a little bit of banter about the fact that you know oh well are you that size
0: sir it moves
1: you up a little bit
0: <laughs> and you know and you have that
1: experience i see you you're
0: mean? a very well dressed gentleman
1: <laughs> or it's about the size you know he looks at because he's done this a number of times he can get Your your size and he puts you in the right part of the rail and you have that little bit of banter and then he starts doing a bit of A-B testing. He says, do you want this one, sir, or this one, sir, and all that kind of stuff. And then you settle on a suit that was probably a bit more expensive than you were intending to buy. And I've been telling, I mean, I used to tell that story all the time about personalization. And that's how how vision for what we'd like to deliver as a digital experience. And what we're actually doing is we're letting people come into the shop we notice they look at a suit, and then we chase them down the road with the same <laughs> suit as they walk into, well, into, into the cafe and go, buy this!
0: Well, and if you remember one of the, uh, the visions we were trying to set up at, at, at SDL when mm. we were talking about customer experience management was that it's like somebody is actually sitting in the park uh and and the, you know they're they're on their phone and they're searching for um yeah. you know pastries or something like that and then all of a sudden it's like an ad pops up from the pastry shop down the down, right down the street and it's like oh my god i can't believe it <laughs> so it's not just that they've walked into the shop it's that they're yeah. somewhere in the co-location yeah. of that shop and they're yeah. getting advertisements and <laughs> it was anyway as a as a brief aside, as I was looking at some of the data in this report that Solar Segment came out, yeah, they said online behaviors and attitudes. And of course, you know people like to research before buying. People worry about people using their data, and then seventeen point seven percent say I try to avoid all advertising. Mm. And I thought, what world do you live in? Because I <laughs> I remember visiting the Soviet Union in eighty six. That's a world without advertising. <laughs> you know, it's like it is impossible to avoid advertising these days, yeah. and that and that's part of the. I mean, I'm sure what people are reacting to is the fact that just we're we're bombarded, and so mm. if we if we continue to bombard to people who we think may be yeah. interested, or even yeah. some AI engine says oh, this, this group's kind of in your target, you know, yeah. Um are we stepping out of the bounds of the fact that the person hasn't even walked into the shop yet?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, but that's the that's the challenge, isn't it? It's the, it's ha- it's that mo- the the reason why there's so much um, attention on privacy, aside from you know the bad use of our data and the, the the lack of understanding in the general populace about what some of big tech is doing with our data, is that people notice it when it's creepy, don't they? And, yes. and when we've kind of overstepped the mark And a lot of people, you know, remarketing As what well a 0. 0.0 Something 5% um, Success rate Now, for, for, a, for a marketer, that's all Pure upside, right? And they, they don't mind <laughs> But what they don't think about is the 99.5% Of the people that are being pissed off By the fact you've just followed yeah. them onto Facebook Right So, um, so, so um, I can't I'm not sure where we're going with this Because we're just talking about general marketing Quite soon, but um, so the, so surely then the Google cookie apocalypse is a good thing, isn't it? Isn't it that is it, it, isn't, isn't, is third party cookies generally bad and that actually cookies are okay because we can recognize somebody coming back into our online digital experience and we can serve them a little better. But, 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 but following them around the interwebs bad is, is bad. Am I simplifying this?
0: Yeah. And no, I think you're, you're, you're right. And I, I guess the, the, so the, you know, n- the challenge with the apocalypse part is, is the, well, what's, what is this portend for what Google's going to do? Yeah. And, and, in terms of just, you know, trying to create more ownership over the ability to track people's behavior. Um, and, um, so that's the thing that I probably worry more about. And, and, and you could say, well, so what, get, get rid of them. Now the, the, this group that is, that did the research, um, or published the research. They're, you know, they're into AI personalization, AI generated personalization. So yeah. it's kind of like, okay, so that's the, that's the substitute. And, and yeah. is that really any better than, than third party co- cookies? And I'd say probably... Probably not because it's not. It's not trying to solve the problem that I think we keep coming back to, which is the the you know establishing that you you've got a role in solving somebody's problem. I guess I, I keep thinking about more from a B two B perspective. You're in the role of solving people's problems. People should know about that that you're in your target. Yeah, that's mostly brand building. And then there's yeah. the now that I've you've entered my 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 digital shop. Yeah, I need to be able to just. You know, give you as clear a set of information that helps you in your decision-making process as possible, Mm -hmm. and um, yeah, and that's that. But so is that
1: is that a suggestion? Really, I mean, you we we opened this with a a conversation saying this is an apocalypse, but that would suggest that actually. Uh, maybe it's going to do us some good. I mean, it's just going to take us off the crack pipe of remarketing and, and get us to focus on on our on our day job of being good
0: marketers. Is, I, you is that know, I'm, a suggestion? I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to be uh, convinced of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, throw the whole batch out and just yeah yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Because I was
1: also thinking about the fact that I mean. The, the, the common thing between all these different websites and the person that's going and, and going on Facebook and the, the thing that gets transported between those is actually the person. Right. And what's going on in their head. Um, so if we br- build brand in them and we build a, a, a point of view about us with them, then they're the third party cookie. If you you know, they're, yes, they're, yeah. they're, they're taking us between these
0: experiences. We don't. The, yeah. the human becomes the cookie.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: it's not. Uh,
1: it's. I mean, that's that's half baked at best. But you know, <laughs> that's my thought. And then the other thought I was having about this, and quite a few weeks ago, I
0: had a convers. We I had a conversation here on the podcast. Nothing's about, worse than half baked cookies, by the way. I... <laughs>
1: yeah, but aren't they all gooey? Isn't that good? And then, and then uh, I, especially as an American, don't you love half baked cookies? They're the gooey. They're the gooey ones, aren't they?
0: Well, the they're probably they're probably more like three quarters baked.
1: <laughs> I think half baked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not, but, uh, to, not to get picky, but anyway.
1: But the other the I had a conversation I can't remember which, which episode it was, but it was about voice and about the rise of voice. Is this whole thing um it pretty much moot because soon we're we're gonna be shouting at Asana uh uh <laughs> about I've got sign on the brain. You can see where I spend all of my day.
0: Alexa, gonna, where's my Asana?
1: <laughs> yeah, we're going to be shouting at Alexa saying, um, you know, uh, I, I, need some, I need some Nike tr- sneakers. I, ne- I need some SAP experience, whatever yeah. it is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, is, is that also a case that we need to just get back to our knitting of brand building so yeah. that people ask for us and look for us rather than us follow them around?
0: Yes, and actually, there's there's probably two good reasons for that. So one is you're bringing up voice, and as more people use voice, um, uh, which is certainly more prevalent in B2C than it is in B2B. But you know, it, it, as long when you get the device and you're used to talking to it, you know, you'll use it for everything. But the other thing is that, and, and you know, one of the um, the stats that this report quoted was one from, you know, my old company serious decisions where the, the 70% of research is done online before they ever talk to a sales rep. Yeah. Which is in many respects true and it does bring up it it brings up a reality. But on the other hand, when you look at the data, because I, I was involved in some mm-hmm. of the B2B buyer studies when you mm. look at the data f- for specific individuals and specific industries, you may find they don't do any of their they don't do anything online <laughs> or, or, they, or yeah, other yeah. than, like email or whatever because they may be you know like I'm a I I run a physician's practice, I'm a CMO of a hospital, I'm a you know it's yeah. like I don't have I don't think I really have time to do a lot of research on things and so when I want to solve a problem I ask somebody and a lot of times I'm asking you know colleagues, you know people outside of yeah. the organization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. and so there's Word a whole of mouth. there's a yeah. whole aspect of the non digital interactions yeah, yeah. that that you're forgetting and and, and so again you got to think back to you know who's the buyer what are their their patterns of of, of doing their research making their decisions when do they bring people when mm-hmm. do they bring uh, uh, live interaction into the into yeah. the place and and is the live interaction with different people. You know, like if, if I'm a if I'm in a manufacturer and I'm, I'm very technical in my uh, my role, or maybe I'm an operations guy, a shop worker, whatever. So I'm out buying some new automation software. I'm going to call people up. I'm, yeah. I'm going to talk to people because I got to yeah. understand: Am I trying to solve whatever my particular my problem is? Am I trying to solve a problem that technology can even? Address yeah yeah and i need to i need and just Mm -hmm. by their nature i need to talk to people and then Mm -hmm. when i when i get stuff online it's going to be probably more technical than the typical information people find online
1: yeah yeah I I i
0: want to dig into the catalog and get specs and stuff like that
1: yeah yeah but that that also plays to the um point that we should get off the digital I called it crack pipe at just a moment ago, um, because that suggests that we should lean into things like referral programs, influencer programs, and spend less time worrying about um, marketing automation data and knowing everybody, you know, and whether yes. somebody downloaded a white paper or whatever they, what the attribution model is, where they clicked into the page, the PPC, and all that kind of stuff, and actually focus on building a really good advocacy program within your customers because that might be and that's completely unmeasurable so we have no idea right whether whether 90 percent of our business is coming through that
0: also it, put, it puts an emphasis on the fact that you want to be able to to combine your marketing and sell sales yeah. data so that if so you know you your, your marketers can understand if their sales activity ticking up in an yeah. account and vice versa um, yeah Yeah. And so it's more about, again, it's more about once they've come into the shop, understanding how to tailor the experience for the person. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it also brings in uh, customer service as well, doesn't it? Because we're trying to create advocates. So it's bringing all together all those things. That's opened up the conversation quite a bit there, Jeff, and we're nearly running out of time. So we started off with privacy. And we're now moving. And where, where, where should we go next week? We're going to stick with this topic.
0: Well, I think that it, it, it in um, so one of the things that certainly you know you talk a lot about is putting together a content strategy. So yeah. I think within the guise of privacy, we might mm-hmm. be saying, well, how do we know, or how can we understand how to build trust with a prospect or a client through our content so that we're um, you know, they're willing to reveal themselves to us. Yes. I'm in your shop because I know there's something you have that I need to help me make my decision.
1: That's, well, that sounds like I'm going to have an opportunity to talk a little bit then next week, Jeff. Yes. i know nothing (laughs) about that no (laughs) (laughs) not not, not that i've been holding back but that sounds sounds fantastic so um, you'll join us again next week now the tune i know that you made two um uh, again in our exhaustive prep we do for these things um you had you had two choices and i would very much like to choose your second choice of i fought the law (laughs) i
0: fought the law yeah, that was, my, that was my thinking about the going up against Google, I Fought the Law and the Law won. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. So we're going to go out with I Fought the Law, with the Law won by The Clash. And
0: uh, that's a Which I think was a cover class. of an earlier version of that tune. But, really? Um, I think uh. it came out in the 50s. But uh, anyway, we don't have time to go into the annals. Of- no, and there's me thinking we were moving forward in our
1: to- <laughs> musical choices. <laughs> that's excellent. Well, I'll, um, I'll stick that on and um, I'll speak to you again next week, Jeff.
0: Awesome. Take care.
1: Thank you, Jeff. And as we mentioned, that was the classic track from The Clash, I Fought the Law. And again, this week, we referred to Mark Schaefer's article, How Can Personalization Data Privacy Coexist? and the research that article refers to from Personalization Vendor Solo segment. And I'll include a link to both of those resources in the show notes. I'd love to know what you think of this segment. Please get in touch, suggest a topic, or maybe help me wrestle the Spotify remote from Jeff and suggest a track. On to my guest interview, Sarah Gressenbach is the founder of B2B Writing Institute, where naturally talented writers learn how to break into business writing and create impactful marketing content. Since 2013, she's operated B2B Content Studio, a freelance consultancy that helps agencies and Fortune 500 technology companies in the HR, retail, e comm and higher education space develop B2B content marketing assets like white papers, thought leadership articles, case studies and more. I'm passionate about content marketing, so it was a delight to spend time with Sarah. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm doing really good. You're very welcome. So um, I obviously did a little bit of bio before, um, before the recording part started, but in your own words, tell us a bit about yourself and what does you do, Sarah?
2: Sure. So in my daily work, I work on content at that really high thought leadership, kind of brand building level for mm-hmm. B2B companies, mostly in technology. And it's been really booming the past year or so because people need so much content. Yeah. But the audience they're trying to reach is this senior level that. They're used to reading McKinsey, Wiley, like actual literature. So the level that you have to hit mm-hmm. to make something readable, yeah. um, there's just been so much
1: demand for that. Yeah, that's And you call your organization B2B Writing Institute. I love that name. Or did I get yeah, that right? Thank you.
2: That's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, so I, as a freelancer, I'm at B2B Content Studio, but mm-hmm. I have found... Really, just in the past year, even in the pandemic, uh, things have sped up so much that I'm kind of at the point where a a normal human would probably try to scale into an agency. But the writing is what I've always loved about this, with my background in education. Mm -hmm. So, to me, uh, my best contribution is teaching other people how to do this, and at that level. So that's what I've really been trying to focus on
1: this year. Oh, cool! And so, and like me, you're you're in B2B, and and uh, that just came through. I mean, uh, you know, the little bit that uh, where we're getting to know each other a little bit. um, And and what I've seen on LinkedIn, you started off as an educationist for words, didn't you? That's right. So words are definitely your thing. So what attracted you to content marketing?
2: Well, once I realized there was a ninth grade English teacher for about two and a half years, Mm -hmm. which Is a veteran the way things are going today. But as I was leaving the classroom, I started a blog to figure out how to leave the classroom. So I made this info product. I sold it to other teachers and I got into kind of the HR space. And I really learned marketing that way by saying, like, what is SEO? How does any of this work? Um, How does WordPress work? Like these little tiny details. And that brought me into a marketing agency for about six months before I was laid off. And then I've been freelancing since 2013. Because, wow. yeah, that that marketing agency showed me how much businesses need help with this, and mm-hmm. so once I was laid off, it was this question of, well, if that guy could do this, maybe <laughs> make it, maybe I could call somebody and ask for money, and and then it just spiraled Spiraled up. I'll say I didn't
1: realize that part of your story. So how, how was that That's for right. you? Because I mean, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people are going through career changes at the moment, and. You know, a lot of people doing their own thing. Um, How did you find that initial turning yourself from, you know, the talent part of you into that sales part of you and and hustle for new business?
2: It was excruciating. (laughs) It was excruciating. But I think that's why content marketing was so important, because... Mm -hmm. I just sucked down the Kool-Aid of it's about educating people and helping them see all their options. So once I kind of had that revelation that I don't have to do a hard sell, Mm -hmm. the whole sell me this pencil and like test people, like that kind of thing, I didn't have to do that. (laughs) Um, And once I just figured out this is something people need, I like to do it. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I'm just honest, it'll work out. Um, That's been the core of any sales education I have, which is why I'm not the expert on that.
1: And that, I mean... <laughs> I mean, that that idea of just being just being genuine and, um, uh, and with with your value seems 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 good. So so you made that transition and you've been running this agency for um, what is it nine years now? So that's that's quite. it will be eight this. All oh, right. Okay. October, my math is terrible.
2: I, I need to have a party. I yeah. could be wrong too. The days blur together when you work for yourself. Well, they also <laughs> during the
1: pandemic they blur together, don't you? Yes. We're all locked. We're all locked down. Oh my um, gosh. So um, the, you know, and there's the inevitable question isn't it? Whenever you talk about B2B um, content marketing, and I almost should make a joke of asking you this question, but what do you see is different between B2B content marketing and why you picked this specialism from consumer-focused marketing? What, what's, what's the secret source of B2B content marketing?
2: Yeah, I think personally mm-hmm. what drew me to it was just this ability to, to, to learn constantly. like Just being curious about businesses has led me down these rabbit holes of the craziest things I didn't know even existed before yeah. I got into the space. So curiosity was a big part for drawing me to it. But the way I share this with new writers is there's this, this push to say that everything's human to human, which... Yeah. I understand. Mm-hmm. I get it. But it's it's kind of a semantic argument because they're humans, but they represent completely different interests and right. needs. So, lately, I've been really pulling on uh, B2C has these motivations that come from psychiatry and yeah. Maslow's hierarchy. Like, okay. you know, physiological needs, safety, yeah. belonging, um, esteem, sex, obviously. But B2B is more about Seth Godin's hierarchy of business needs. Yeah. So, once I found that, it was... Just like little trumpets went off in my brain, and I really understood (laughs) why somebody's
1: going to read something and what you should be talking about when you're writing a white paper. Right, right. And um, there's a lot of talk about the emotion around B2B. Um, Would you agree that the the, B2B, because you just sort of touched on it a little bit there about the motivation for, for B2B buyers, would you say it's more or less emotional for a B2B buyer to make the decision for buying this new software product than? You know, if I wanted Mm. to buy some new sneakers. Is that something you play on when you're when you're when you're in your in your writing?
2: I think it's always going to depend because there are some technology products where status is a huge part of it. Mm. So if your whole positioning as a product is about beating the competition and, you know, these very special KPIs that you just help everybody improve. Yeah, I'm sure emotion plays into that, maybe even with smaller companies like on the startup side where it's, really ego, I say that as a startup, it's really ego, (laughs) and and you want all of that coming your way. But Mm -hmm. I think in general, I've found when people try to use emotion too much, it um, it sets off the BS meter, and it makes right. it it right. makes you step away from what you're reading and kind of feel like you're being manipulated. Ah,
1: right? Okay. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I see. So yeah, it's, it's interesting the interpretation of the of the question there because you're thinking about the emotion that we put into writing as B two B marketers, and that we try and. I, I was more thinking about the actual buying process being emotional, and mm. the, the fact that we as B two B marketers need to sort of reassure and give build trust and all those lovely... Thing, emotional things, don't we? In 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 terms of the fact that somebody's going to make a decision that's going to maybe define their immediate career or their status in the office or with the boss and stuff. Well, is that is that does that play into how you how you approach your B two B marketing? That's
2: yeah, that is interesting. I think when I look at emotion, I'm usually thinking of what emotions you're trying to cause in the other person. So if we're talking about Really uh, dramatic emotions or dynamic emotions, then that pushes me towards the B to C and the direct response yeah, and yeah. and things that can feel more persuasive than educational.
1: Yeah, yeah. And when we when we and I, when we were chatting talking about that sort of story that we need to tell, when we were chatting on email in preparation for this, uh, you talked about content projects being expensive, which I think is interesting because I don't think I think sometimes. And Robert Rose has a good skit on this that he talks about. You know, he would talk to a CFO and ask them if they know how much they're spending on content. And people really don't. Right. They don't. They just think somebody Mm. writes it and it happens. And, you know, they'll do an expensive web project and then fill in the content and and think that that happens almost for free. So I think it's interesting that you're recognizing the value of content products, projects. But the important part that you were highlighting was choosing the right theme of what's important for a brand and the audience. Is that, the, is that finding the story that we have to tell is that what you're is that what you're saying there about that importance of the theme that we need to tell
2: I think so, I think for context, about half the work I do is for kind of high performance content agencies so mm-hmm. these really big ones like studio ID from industry dive Skyward Questex or fierce markets mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of it's places where companies would go sponsor one big content project and yeah. just put it out in the world and kind of put their eggs in that basket yeah so from that perspective there's it's kind of your shot to make an impression, and yeah. so picking the right story yeah. um, and telling the right story and taking people to the right place is really important. So I was I was more thinking about that kind of high performance content rather yeah. than um, you know a brand's own content marketing. Process, which is a little different.
1: Yeah, yeah, but you, but the important part is finding that that theme, isn't it? That, that you mm-hmm. need to get that right. So how well, how do you take when you're going through that process with your clients, and you're figuring out that story, that theme they have to tell? How do you how do you get to that point with them?
2: Yeah, there are three things that kind of came up when I was thinking about um, when I have that kickoff call. What always happens, and and the questions I always have to. Either talk somebody out of or bring more focus to. Because Mm -hmm. when marketers come into the conversation with a really strong idea of what they want to do, um, sometimes that can be based on what they want to do, not what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of shifting the the view of it in that way. Um, And so the first thing that is really important is making sure that you're focusing on the future. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people come in with the sense that storytelling involves backstory and you know just a description of all history up to this moment and then we can talk about our product <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: when it, the thing that's happening for the reader is they already know they're already immersed in this completely yeah. they understand the pain points they understand why it's not working yeah. how it is yeah. and and so really pulling focus away from what has happened and what people are experiencing mm-hmm. like calling the pandemic unprecedented and all the uncertainty and innovation that's happening <laughs> we all get it yeah we get it. We can just write one introduction. We yep. can all paste that into our white papers and be done with it. <laughs> but um, And so the, an example of this came to mind. I was working with a company. With really innovative products, and I know on a previous podcast somebody said that word needs to
1: go away. But
2: <laughs> it really is innovative, and it applies. Uh,
1: isn't that data terrible? Science. Like that's what marketers do. Right, like, we <laughs> ruin everything, and now you can't even call something innovative even when it is. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: But it, Sorry, it erodes touched. the meaning of the word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. I, I wouldn't use that word either. But I yeah. think. Between you and I, I was impressed. Yeah, But it uses data science to help retailers pick the right amount of product to order. Mm-hmm. And the first draft of the outline that the client wanted was just the history of retail. Mm-hmm. And you know, starting back in the 50s and moving through the 70s and all these things that have happened to lead us to this moment. Wow. And that's really interesting. And if McKinsey published a book on that, I would read it. But in a white paper, where you're trying to really focus your message and, and have something happen, um, that's all stuff that we could cut. And we yeah. just moved right to what happens now, what's available yeah. now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, But we do that, don't we? But do, is there a certain element of that that we should do in order to develop empathy to demonstrate that we understand their pain? Is that? Um, mm-hmm. But you're saying just keep that really brief?
2: I think keep it brief and keep it tied to current data. Mm-hmm. I think there's, I think it's more there's a way to do that in one or two lines mm-hmm. and not in two to three paragraphs. Yeah. Because really, your introduction, that's your chance to keep people reading. So if they start off with a history of something they're already very familiar with, it might not keep attention.
1: Right, right. So have we driven to the, 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 the story? How, how do you then, like, so... So you've got the story that, that you want them to. Te- that they've come to you with a story they want to tell, and you said no. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not quite it. What? How do you actually? Um, you know? How do you actually then tease that next bit out of telling this sort of future story of where you want to take the reader?
2: Yeah, I think it always comes down to what they're seeing with their customers. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, So that second thing is to just really not hold back on what you know and Mm -hmm. and try to keep your, especially when it's consulting or when it's a vendor partnership kind of situation, um, to keep your expertise inside is just the worst mistake you could make when you're writing a a white paper, a, a larger content product. Yeah, And so I think bringing attention to, you know, what kind of problems are your customers having right now? What mm-hmm. do they ask you about the most? Um, what do you do that really is unique? Like, mm-hmm. where, where do you start in the process that's going to
1: change people's businesses? Mm-hmm. Is that this sort of be the best answer to their questions? Is that what we're saying? Mm. <laughs> it's I a think- hackneyed content marketing expression, but it's the good yeah. one, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And, and be be the place where they're going to go for transformation because we can Google just anything now. Every company seems to have their own directory and database on their topic. So, Finding companies that really can show you everything they know, how they've helped everybody else in the world, and how they take a unique approach to every problem that they come across, I think there's a way to do that in content that is
1: really effective yeah, no I agree um you touched on a little bit sort of some of your experience there um dare I ask uh, uh, have you ha- have you got good or bad examples of where people have done that? I totally do there was um
2: so I'm making up the examples, but I kind of created parallel situations. And <laughs> the names have been changed
1: to pre- protect the <laughs> <Exactly. innocent. laughs>
2: to protect the people who later changed their minds. And it, 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 one example that comes to mind is brands choosing kind of an epic topic because they yeah. feel this pressure to do thought leadership. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the question becomes: Is the best person to write about diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, an appointment scheduling software like? What are people going to get about a white paper from that provider? Yes, And it just, there's a lack of alignment there Yes, that, you know, if they just took a step back and looked at their customers and said, yeah. what problem, what business, Seth Godin's hierarchy of needs, yeah. what problem are we solving with this? That yeah. paper is going to be so much better than... Like ninety-nine ways to build inclusion, yeah, with your scheduling
1: software, like Great. something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, and we saw a lot of that, didn't we? Um, you know, you, well, you see a lot of it mm-hmm. now because we're so responsive to what's going on in in the in the general zeitgeist that people just get a bit carried away, don't they? And and you've mm-hmm. got to be, and and it's it's viewed very cynically, isn't it, by the audience when they see. This sort of um, uh, woke washing, I suppose, and, and another, you know, and it's a bit like you said about yep. the pandemic. Everybody suddenly had an opinion about the pandemic. Now, I know that it affected a lot of us in the way that we work and a lot of the tools that we use are part of the way we work. So a lot of them were relevant to that conversation. But if you're not relevant to the conversation and you've got nothing oh, need right. to add, what's the point? You know, what, what are you talking about?
2: Yeah. But, or even... You know, maybe be a little more careful about what format you're using. Because yeah. I could see in a webinar situation, it is more interesting to hear a company's leadership tell their story of yeah. inclusion, no yeah. matter what the product yeah. is. Yeah. But if you are sharing this epic piece of content that will yeah. live on, that will do SEO for you, uh, that's that's just not the best one you're going to pick.
1: Right, right. Um, and um, a good example? A good
2: example. Oh, I didn't have... One prepared, but let me think. Uh, it's they're like, just so – the problem is, you know, with these agencies, they're really top-notch. So, the good examples far outweigh the bad yeah, examples. Yeah, yeah. But I think my favorite involve, you know, when a technology company shares the process of how they built their product and why it's – Best in class. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one that comes to mind about uh, in the financial industry, like digital account opening, like that customer journey process. Yeah. Really going into it and sharing yeah. these are the five things we thought about when we built our products, and this is how engineering was involved, this is yeah. how customer
1: support was involved.
2: Yeah. I think walking the walk in text. Yeah. Is really attractive.
1: Yeah, and I think telling stories, I've just, I know that people can't see the video, but um, I've just read um, Ten Stories Great Leaders Should Tell by Paul Smith. I've had the book for ages and finally got around to, I mean, it's a a ten minute read almost, you know, so it's not uh, but that's exactly it, right? Isn't it? You should tell your origin story, a differentiation story, and and the eight (laughs) other stories that are in the book as well, so yeah. Uh, This has been fantastic. I'm just realizing the time. So, um... Finally, uh, we have a regular feature on Rockstar CMO, the swimming pool, our portal to hell for all the snake oil BS and overhyped trends or buzzwords that plague this industry we love. What would you throw in there?
2: I knew right away. I closed my eyes and I just pictured every, every call to action I've ever had to write that went directly to a product page. It's like, we know how to buy the product. We know exactly where to go to get that. So I think when you're doing content, especially if it's a downloadable project, um, to really use that call to action to help people continue down the rabbit hole of Mm -hmm. content and building trust is just so much more effective than click here to visit the product page.
1: (laughs) well so they know click to here there. to visit the product <laughs> page that's a first right. and, a, and that's a, and it's good to see a bit of b2b being represented in the swimming pool as well so that's a fantastic one <laughs> thank you very much sarah and when uh, people spin the dial on the interwebs and they're looking for you where will they find you
2: uh, heading to b2b is where mm-hmm. all the action is happening
1: excellent i shall and are you on twitter and linkedin also
2: I am so. Ah, oh yeah. Sarah on Twitter uh-huh. is most active, and LinkedIn just Whatever. what my name, yeah, however
1: that works. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'll include all your links in the show notes. Thank you very much for joining me, Sarah. Thanks. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. Splendid, Thank you, Sarah. Very much enjoyed our conversation. And of course, I will include links to her LinkedIn profile, Twitter, and her company in the show notes. I actually met Sarah through our Rockstar CMO community via our newsletter that you can subscribe to from our podcast website, rockstarcmo.fm, or go directly to beat.rockstarcmo.com. Right. It's that time of the week to escape lockdown, take a trip to the Rockstar CMO virtual bar and be transported away with a cocktail with my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose.
3: Good evening, Robert. What are you drinking? Oh, hello, my friend. I, it is nice to see you in the bar. So here's the fun thing. Mm-hmm. I think this week I'm going to drink a gin and tonic, and let me tell you why. <laughs> Let's get out. I of have way. the drink I have for you. I don't love. I, I, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going mm-hmm. to make it for you. Yes. But I'm not. I, I'm not loving it. So uh, I may switch over with you, and you can make me a gin and tonic. Okay. Um, so I have this uh, uh, it, this wonderful Reposado tequila, um, mm-hmm. as we usually do. Um, yes. And, but it's not a great tequila. It's not, you know, like one of those really fine ones. And I was playing around with um, infusions. And oh, yeah. For those in the audience that may not know, an infusion is basically you get, you know, Dried fruit or dried, you know, flowers or dried things, Mm -hmm. and you put them into a bit of a mesh, like almost like a tea, uh, and then you basically put them into your tequila and you let them sit for sometimes a day, sometimes a week, you know, at all, and you have an infusion of flavor into whatever tequila. Well, Mm -hmm. I tried this this infusion of rose, which was uh, cute, you know, for the Mm -hmm. obvious reason, and then obviously I wanted to taste and see what it was like. They don't go y'all together. They don't, they don't. They don't. They don't work well that together. Mm-hmm. So, my my drink this week is a bit more of a cautionary tale than it is actually. <laughs> um, you know, they're fine if you're into rose. If you're into that yes. flavor, um, yeah. it's it's really nice. But it does. I, I I just for me it didn't work as well in the in the tequila. I think it works better, honestly, in Ancient. like a gin or a vodka or yeah. something like that. So. Um, so I think I'm going to hand you this drink, let you have a sip of it, and then say, m- "Make me a gin and tonic."
1: Yeah, well, you know that I'm going to try and replicate that with the limited <laughs> ingredients I have in my bar. I've yeah. not tried them. Um, I've not tried anything with rose before. I have tried tequila, but uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, so I'm going to. St- oh, I didn't. I didn't. Ref- uh, last week I promised you I would change my gin, and I haven't. Uh, that wasn't good. Um, so, uh, I am. Did you put ice in that? Uh,
3: I I did put ice in it. Yes. Uh, I've got some water in my ice bucket, but there we go. I've got
1: some ice. Um, I'm sticking with Rupert this week. Uh, the sit Smith uh, gin, which I will change out for next week, I promise. Um, especially if you I'm making you promise
3: me, I think you should make a promise to yourself because uh, you yourself know, <laughs> treating yourself to something nice is 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 the thing to do on the weekend.
1: <laughs> Treat yourself. I think we did that a few yeah. weeks ago. Um, but yes, I think the um, all right then. Um, but also, if I was making this for you, I definitely wouldn't use this then, because that's not yours your thing, and. I have got something that's very similar to um
3: rose thing that you put in yours.
1: Yeah. Uh, in, it isn't at all, but it's called tonic. Uh, ah, and, yes. and it's been infused. Well, there are
3: rose-flavored tonics. I know that.
1: Yeah, I saw them actually in the supermarket when I was, when I was refreshing my bar. And I thought, no, I'm going to stick to infused with cucumber.
3: Ah, see, uh, that's, see that's brilliant. That, that tonic
1: water is brilliant. I'm going to try this. Oh, that's very nice, Robert. There very nice come. indeed. I could, uh, well, I'm surprised really that you didn't like it. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, it probably works better with gin than it does with the tequila.
1: <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, I, I thought maybe after doing this for a year, I might swap out, but we're in episode, uh, what would this one be? 57 <laughs> still yeah. drinking the gin and tonics. Anyway. So, um, I now I've got to make sure I've got my maths right there. Always a bit difficult after a couple of cocktails. So, um, where are we going to be drinking these, sir?
3: Well, you know, so I think we need to go. So, since my my drink was a big hashtag fail, um, <laughs> I think we need to go to one of my very favorite places in the entire world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is that time of year where this place. So, I'm not a ski person, but um, right. Um, but the, this, so I enjoy this place much more in the spring than I do in the. Um, uh, in the winter, although mm-hmm. it is a big ski resort. So there is a place in Utah called Sundance now. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yes. And Sundance, you may have heard of because you'll heard of the Sundance film festival, yes. um, which of course is in park city, which is nearby, but it's a good uh, 40, 45 minutes away from yes. Sundance. Um, Sundance is actually a tiny little place uh, up in the mountains and uh Of course, it was land purchased by Robert Redford back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to be confused with Sundance, Wyoming, which is where the Sundance kid gets his name, of course. But um, it is where, if you remember the movie Jeremiah Johnson, um, Mm -hmm. this Sundance um, is where it was filmed, the Sundance. And there's a resort up there, and it's absolutely spectacular i mean there's a babbling running creek and waterfalls and mountains and trees and it's way up in the mountains so it's you know the kind of thing where you can you know as you're walking up the mountain you're instantly out of breath um (laughs) and uh and it's just out of there no cell phone coverage um they do have wi-fi there so you can actually connect to the real world but very low cell phone coverage there so your phone doesn't work um it's just a great place to get out of the the you know, sort of rat race of the world and be there. And the fun fact is the resort there is where they had the original uh, Sundance Institute, which of course uh-huh. became the Sundance film festival. And then when the Sundance film festival became too big for this resort, they moved it to park city. So wow. it is it, this, the layout and the beauty of this place is just spectacular. And it's a great place for us to enjoy nice. some nature and very, very, very uh, nice peace and quiet.
1: Nice and um, presumably, uh, well, I would need to have found some decent gin to make you a gin and tonic in this particular case. I think to make up for what you'd made yourself. Um, but what? So we're sitting back, we're looking out um, across this beautiful scenery, um, and probably slightly breathless from just walking to the bar, let alone up the hill. Um, what's um, what are we going to be talking about?
3: Well, we're in we're in you know in the big country, so we're going to mm-hmm. have big ideas. Um, oh, and. You know the 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 funny thing is I've I've been doing some thinking about this and it it, it came from a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine at a healthcare company, um, which is you know we're constantly given advice to say something like you know it's all possible right dream yeah. big you know yeah. start small aim high, <laughs> and I think in many ways that's bad advice, um and and you know before the hate letters come out and the you know <laughs> at me's. Um, I'm the first one to say that goals should be big. Our goals should stretch, you know, the boundaries of our imaginations. They should take us out of our comfort zone, but making sure that we really understand what it is we want to achieve when we think big, because often the bumper sticker of think bigger or, you know, think big, it yeah. kind of stops where it starts. Right. So it's in other words, it's like you hear the encouragement aim higher. It's like, all right, well, I'll just double my goal. Right. Yeah. And it's not, that's not a good way to do it because when you start down the wrong path of your goal, well, and, and there's a great quote from, uh, Stephen Covey, the guy who wrote the seven habits of highly effective people. Yeah, He wrote this, you know, if the ladder isn't leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. <laughs> and the, the conversation I was that. having with my friend was because the, uh, the, t- the company was planning to reorganize the marketing team because, mm. quite frankly, it was being seen as too big and unwieldy to be effective as it once was. And he was disappointed on that, of course, and really mm. bummed out about it. But five years ago, ironically, his boss had given him the, quote unquote, think bigger to scale his seven person group to a team of 25. Mm-hmm. And so he had done that, right? He had dutifully yeah. broken that goal down into smaller steps, achieved yeah. it. And he'd taken on every amount of kind of work requested, you know, tirelessly working to ensure the team performed at those tasks at a high level and Mm -hmm. added resources and added resources and added resources. And here, five years later, he had a team of 25, which was triple the size. So he had crushed his quote unquote goal. Mm -hmm. But then the team was seen as being unwieldy and too big. So they broke it up. So now you go, well, all right, that's fine. But the goal was wrong, right? It wasn't Mm. the aim, higher advice. It was just a misguided bad goal. But I think in many ways, we're sort of hardwired to think about this for any thinking goal, right? So, for example, you might be told you need to double the business's lead volume or increase it by 85%. And so the team refocuses to achieve exactly that. And sometime later, you found out, well, yeah, you doubled the lead volume, but you have the quality, right? Yeah. Or you spent twice as much money for the same result. Yeah. And so you end up in no better place than you actually started, but you've achieved that one goal. Yeah. And so one of the things that I've found that's helpful in that is sort of embracing this idea of essence over the form. Mm. In other words, when we get a big goal, when we think about a big goal, asking ourselves, well what does that big goal actually represent and list out all the things that would be true if we met the essence, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, doubling leads might help us to achieve the essence. Maybe it's more profit. Maybe it's more, you know, yeah. recognition. Maybe it's more, you know, whatever. Yeah. But that gives us, if we start listing out all the things that might be true, well, we might achieve those that essence by generating fewer leads, but that spend twice as much yes. or the ones that easily are cross-sold. And so in my friend's case, right, the essence was really to establish his marketing team as an invaluable process that was core to the company and strategic as any other discipline. Well, that's the essence. Now, what are all the things that might be true to reach that big essence? And now we can start building paths to get to the essence of a big goal rather than sort of picking some doubling of an arbitrary number that may lead us down the wrong path.
1: Yeah, I love that. And and you're saying, in essence, I've heard that described as like outcomes that you focus on the outcome. And also, you know, the hackneyed. Well, I, it's not hackneyed because it was advice you gave me years ago, which was asking why. Right. So, um, yeah. you know, you need you need to quadruple your team. Well, you know, and, it, and it's very I would imagine it's very hard at that point to ask why, because you're like, great, I can get on with that. And here's a thing, and this'll make me successful, and and delight my boss, and off we go. Whereas going, hang on a minute, <laughs> how does this look in five Wait years just time? Just a moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, what does this really mean? And you, you, you look a bit odd. Going, why would I want to do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. so I think it's really interesting, and it, and it is about being. I mean, I've, um, you know, we've discussed the, the whole vanity metric thing, and and you you get what you measure a lot of the time, don't you? with, with marketers. So if you say to me, I want more, um, web hits, then I'll give you more web hits or if I want more, you that's know, right. but, but it's not going to achieve the outcome that you want. Right. Well that, and
3: that's, and, and that's where this, one of this, this, this came from because, you know, yeah. in something else that I wrote a while back, I wrote this, yeah. this idea is basically the behavior you measure is the behavior you get. Yeah. And, absolutely. and that is as a, any sort of team leader, you know, that, you know, People will alter their behavior in the way that you measure them. And so, you know, you have to know that. So measure, you know, as... um, Uh, Eli Goldratt, uh, who is a wonderful business thinker and also a mathematician and all sorts of data, all that kind of stuff. As he says, you know, if you measure me in an illogical way, don't complain about illogical behavior. (laughs) I love that.
1: Yeah, and I I mean, I've um, I've worked with firms where, um, in a consulting basis, where I worked with a CMO and looked across his business, and he'd actually, when when you actually talk to all the different um, bits of marketing, you realise that they were actually. Conflicting against themselves in, in terms of what their goals were, and um, and that can happen, can't it, in large organisations? So, yeah, it's very important. But that's uh, you just mentioned that uh, you was writing about things. Where where would people find these writings, Mister
3: Well, Rose? they would find that at um, my little hovel on the web, which is of mm-hmm. course www. Uh, <laughs> do we even say that anywhere? Do you say the www? Did mean, the cool kids say dub, the dub, World dub, Wide Web? <laughs> yes. um, maybe you've heard of it. Um, <laughs> contentadvisory.net is uh, where uh-huh. we have our uh, all of our thinking here and then of course on social media you can get me at Robert underscore Rose on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. and on LinkedIn um, and never these days on clubhouse i'm kind of Ooh,
1: we've we haven't mentioned clubhouse for a few weeks i'm i'm the same and i keep tweeting about it as well yeah. it was wonderful to get an invite though i'm delighted with that um, <laughs> i, I still haven't
3: mustered up the courage to delete it from my phone yet but uh, it, yeah. i'm getting there soon
1: yeah the notifications are driving me nuts all right well thank you very much robert We're, and aside from where i'll find you on the interwebs will i find you in the bar next week of course you will excellent i look forward to it thank you mate yeah cheers thank you Robert big country big ideas bad advice and goals inspiring stuff what do you think let us know I will of course include all of Robert's links in the show notes so that's a wrap on episode 57 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Martin Podcast. Thank you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox, selecting our track and jiving along with us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks again to Jeff, Sarah and Robert. People pay good money for their advice, so I really appreciate them sharing it with us. Please check out their links in the show notes, follow them, take a look at their work and share that you heard them here. You can find the show notes on your favourite podcasting platform or at rockstarcmo.fm where you can also find all our previous episodes. So what do you think? Does the world need another Effing Martin podcast? Please let us know, leave a review, subscribe, share or get in touch. You can find us at Rockstar CMO on Twitter and LinkedIn or just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, Jeff and I will continue to discuss privacy, the marketer's dilemma. I'm hoping to chat to another Forrester alumna, former VP and principal analyst Julie Ogilvie. And Robert will be back in our virtual Rockstar CMO bar. Until then, I've been your host Ian Truscott and I hope you'll again join us next week here at Rockstar CMO FM.